Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar, as always. And uh, happy week after your birthday, Akil. <laughs> and happy week before yours, Andy. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, we want to remind our audience that Constitution Day is coming up uh, next week. So um, there are tons of things that go on around the country to uh, to mark that day. In fact, I think there's actually... Um, some sort of law that requires such things to, to take place. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you, Robert Byrd. Um, uh, he uh, has generated amazing uh, paydays um, uh, uh, for me. He was a big lover of the Senate, a long-serving senator, a complicated person, began as a Klansman, actually, but um, and, vote, and, and tried to oppose via the filibuster and other things the um, various civil rights and voting rights reforms in the 1960s but came to repent and apologize for that at the end of his career. So he, he was a big uh, defender of, of the Senate and Senate prerogatives, big believer in the filibuster. I'm not. But he also was um, self-taught and, um, and a lover of um, the Constitution, as he understood it. And he got a federal law passed that said that institutions of higher education – that get federal funds, which most institutions of higher education, have to have some programming on the Constitution on or near Constitution Day, which is September 17th. September 17th, because that was the day the Philadelphia Convention um, went public with its proposal in 1787, the day that 39 people um, had their names um, added to the document um, and, and, and the Constitution went public, so to speak, the beginning of the hinge of human history that a year that changed everything when we, the people, actually decided that we were, yes, we would, we do, we, we ordain and establish this Constitution. So because of, of Robert Byrd, um, every college in America and, and, and other um, important institutions have to have some programming on or near the 17th every year about the Constitution. It doesn't have to be in favor of the Constitution. That would be itself a, a First Amendment problem if, if the government forced um, every college to, to salute uh, the Constitution every year. But you have to have some programming. And what this has meant for me is a lot of opportunities and, and invitations. Um, uh, one year, uh, and, and some desperate phone calls in late August uh, from, from various institutions, um, uh, one year, um, I actually did the same. Um, this, this was my first experience, Andy, with Proto-Zoom, just to see um, uh, how much or how little is lost when you do things um, virtually rather than in person. Um, I had agreed long before to do um, a, an in-person event on Constitution Day uh, at the University of Connecticut in, uh, in stores. Connecticut, just up, up the road. Um, uh, um, but college in Utah, um, very desperate, said, Professor, can you, can you do anything? And we actually needed to be on that day. So I can't be in Connecticut and in, in Utah on the same day. And they said, well, actually, um, uh, and then I said, actually, maybe I can. I don't know if this would work for you, but could we do it um, through a, a video hookup? And that it'll be much less expensive for you because you won't have to, you know, pay to for me to get on a plane to haul my carcass, you know, out to Utah. They'll have to put me up overnight, probably, just because of, of the timing of the whole thing. Um, and then they have to 
get my carcass back and you know there's airfare and 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 ground transportation all that it'll be much less expensive um, uh, for you you want to try it and they were desperate so they said yes so and I actually did the same basic presentation um, in the um, uh, early in the day uh, from the Yale studios in Utah later in the day in person um, in Connecticut um, and, uh, and, and I was able to actually report to the places. I think there was only about, you know, a 20% loss, um, uh, I, um, um, in, in the effectiveness of, of the event and the, the, the interpersonal connections as measured by good questions from the audience, email follow-ups after both events, uh, and, and the like, I thought in person, you know, was better. And in the Everscholar tradition, Andy, you know, we, we actually had a meal um, after the event at, at Connecticut. I'm, you're nodding your head because you really believe in the in-person um, model and, and uh, the, the meal after the seminar. Also known as the feast after the seminar. Okay. Um, so, so, so there was a loss. I, 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 but, but I would say only 20% or, or so. so and th- but this is all because of uh, Senator Byrd. And we're going to be talking today um, about several things, but one of the big things is, is books. And um, I'm in the middle of a book tour right now. Um, ten events in ten days um, in, I think, seven different states scattered over 1,000 miles. Um, and it's not a surprise that this is the 10-day window because this is Constitution Week. Um, so I did actually, um, uh, um, we're recording this on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Three days ago, I did an event at Wake Forest, and that was um, by video, and that's how they fulfilled um, their uh, uh, Robert Byrd requirement. The Constitutional um, Law Professor Full Employment Act. Exactly. Um, thank you, uh, Senator Bird. Um, my 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 kids' college fund also thanks you. Um, uh, that was three days ago. Two days ago, I did an event at the Ridgefield Public Library. I don't think that was any constitu- uh, a federal mandate for them. Um, but yesterday, I did an event um, with uh, my friends Sandra and Maury Myers at the University of Scranton, um, and that was, I think, in fulfillment of of their bird. Um, thing. Uh, next week, I'm going to be over the next few days at Michigan State, um, at Northwestern, at University of um, Illinois, at Champaign Urbana, um, uh, at uh, Greenville Community College, uh, Community Technical College in South Carolina uh, via Zoom, um, at um, a Gilder Lehrman event. Um, I think that's not a Robert Byrd related thing, but but six of those ten things, uh, plus or minus, um, are are, are um, um, Robert Byrd events. You're right. I do advocate for the in-person um, event as as having greater meaning. It doesn't mean that I don't recognize the virtues of of online and incre- increasing um, accessibility and so forth. Of course, there's a constitutional analogy here. Um, which is when the Constitution was during the ratification year, um, you know, you had the uh, 18th century version of the Internet, which was, you know, publishing and newspapers and so forth, um, and the Federalist and so forth allowed for for discussion when people couldn't necessarily be there in person. You couldn't get, uh, you know, Alexander Hamilton down in Charleston, uh, you know, the same day he was up in New York or whatever, but you could get his writings there. 
So that was their techno- technological miracle that uh, that expanded the discussion. And so, the, in a, in a sense, the constitutional conversation uh, continues to to adapt to technological change. So there was that that was not in person, but then there were the in person constitutional conventions held in the 13 states mm-hmm. um, um, where there were um, um, uh, not just conversations, but meals um, and I- informal discourse um, um, uh, uh, in between all the, um, uh, the formal face-to-face interactions. Um, and that actually, um, the, 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 the importance of those face-to-face interactions is one of the bigger themes of chapter six of my uh, new book, uh, the words that made us, um, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840, um, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, I'm using this uh, um, book, uh, uh, this uh, window in September and this these Robert Byrd opportunities, um, not just to talk about the Constitution generally, but wherever I can to talk about the book in, in particular. So this is actually a, a book tour connected to Constitution Day. Um, and Chapter 6 of the, the book is about the significance of the face-to-face interactions where, for example, one person, an anti-federalist, could say, you need a Bill of Rights. Um, That's a huge error. And a federalist could say, face-to-face, you're right. I pledge to you that if you uh, ratify the Constitution, I'll work with you to add a Bill of Rights. When the anti-federalist said the House of Representatives is too small, um, the Federalists can say, actually, that was a bit of a goof on our part. Um, um, it was just a te- and it was just a temporary measure before the first census and after the first census. I promise that we will work to expand the House of Representatives as, as, as fast as possible. Um, and those are the sorts of things that it's very difficult to do um, just in um, a, a, a newspaper interaction or something. Um, but it can happen face to face in a convention or um, over uh, dinner. I could see an, a version of this argument being made regarding the Senate rules for proc- the, the House rules for proxy voting. The House doesn't get to set its own rules to allow proxy voting because the Constitution requires the House to meet in person. And um, this discussion that we're having right now might be an indication of why it, there might be a constitutional purpose to having the House meet in, per- in person that might uh, override the you know, provision that says that the House gets to set its own rules. Um, and on the other hand, um, the House isn't meeting um, uh, virtually just f- uh, um, on a whim, um, but be- because of communicable diseases and, and COVID. So, that, you know, uh, yes, it's nice to be able to um, uh, break bread with each other, but it's not so nice to, to infect each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there may be a reasons. And, and actually, um, since I'm, we're talking about the book um, in, in, in this episode, the book actually has a discussion of um, a, a letter, a series of letters that George Washington sent, um, including to James Madison, about whether he could move the location of the congressional session because there was an epidemic, a yellow fever epidemic in uh, Philadelphia. The epidemic broke out after the Congress had adjourned um, and they had resolved to to meet back at Philadelphia at a certain date, but Philadelphia was um, in the crosshairs of a yellow fever epidemic. And so Washington writes 
to Madison, and they've actually become somewhat estranged at this point, but Madison is the de facto um, leader of um, the, the House of Representatives, and Washington uh, says, what do you think your colleagues would say and think if I, if I announced that the new meeting is going to be outside um, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia, in, in, in some um, less um, pestilential uh, 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 place. So, so, um, uh, and, and uh, so that issue about um, the, the the Constitution's rules about meeting and how they could or should be modified in the event of uh, a contagious epidemic that actually came that issue came up in the Washington administration. Right. So there's and examples. It's in the new on- book. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, for those of of, uh, of you listeners who are new to our podcast, uh, the book that we're discussing is "The Words That Made Us: America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840," which uh, is Professor Mar's latest book it was published in May, and uh, we're we're making another round here with this because it's relevant to you know this series that we've been doing on authority, scholars, scholarship, um, and so forth, and now books. And, uh, and, and also because I think, uh, in a sense, you are entering sort of a new, new phase with the book. You're going on a book tour. Before you had the virtual book tour, now the in-person book tour, it's quite different. And that really raises the, the idea that, well, you know, when we say book tour, everybody knows what we mean. And, you know, you're going to go different places and, and you're going to go uh, to talk to audiences at places where other authors have spoken to audiences uh, before, um, and there's this whole infrastructure um, related to books that exists in in America. Um, it's it's part of our of our culture, and it's part of the constitutional culture as well. Um, right. We um, just to locate this conversation in uh, the context of the broader aims and ambitions, and I think now we can even say, Andy, accomplishments of uh, this podcast in general. Um, here's what we're trying to do in the podcast. We're trying to give our audience um, a sense of, of America's constitutional culture um, uh, at the founding, but also um, um, over uh, history, but of course today. And we've been talking about, um, uh, over the course of many different podcast episodes, we've tried to illuminate different corners, different pockets, different niches um, within uh, our constitutional ecosystem, so to speak, our our culture. Um, So, for example, we've obviously talked about the justices. We've talked about the Supreme Court. We've talked about the court and its individual current members. Um, um, It's um, uh, uh, some of its, its biggest Cases we, we we talked about Roe versus Wade, for example, um, recently a, a, a really important constitutional case now um, uh, in the crosshairs. Um, we've talked about people who um, not just the people who sit on the court and whether they're going to retire or not and when and how, um, but we've talked about people who actually clerked at the court and and litigate regularly before the court. A two-parter with Neil Katyal. We had a you know spectacular. Um, interview with uh, 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 America's preeminent journalist who wrote the uh, political journalist who wrote, uh, uh, who not only brought down um, a president, maybe two, definitely Nixon, maybe Trump, but who co-authored the leading um, modern expose insider account 
of Supreme Court decision-making, the great Bob Woodward, and his um, book with Scott Armstrong, uh, The Brethren. Um, so, um, uh, of course, we've talked a lot about um, a constitu- um, uh, we've, we've talked about, for example, the, the Biden Commission and those who sit on it and those who testify before it, because it's a commission about Supreme Court reform. That's another little part of um, the larger constitutional system that we have. We've, of course, talked a lot about presidents and presidencies, and 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 even if you're court focused, presidents pick judges who sit on uh, courts. Um, um, and we, we've talked about lots of different parts of our constitutional system, and we've talked about the role of constitutional scholars in all of that. Our um, earlier episodes, um, before we had an interlude on uh, because of uh, current events um, with the, the, the Texas abortion um, uh, issue, um, but uh, b- before today's conversation on books, we really were talking about um, uh Articles, articles published in law journals, which are typically um, uh, uh, run by law students, and and how that meant that citations after the fact were maybe more important than placements, um, uh, a journal placements um, uh, initially. Um, unlike in other uh, parts of the academy, where whose leading journals are actually peer reviewed by experts, since that's not true in law, the, the, the journals are run by law students who may not know that much, maybe after the fact citations are more important. So we talked about people who publish law review articles and are cited in law review articles and citation counts and, and, and rankings of citations um, uh, of individual scholars, of individual scholarly articles, which articles are more cited than which other articles, which scholars are more cited by other scholars in law review literature. Um, as distinct, let's say, from um, cited um, by judges and, and justices, which is its own separate um, quadrant, which um, uh, we um, discussed, which individual articles themselves are, are, are most cited as opposed to um, which scholars overall. So we talked a lot about um, a law review um, um, a culture, uh, law journals, um, and those who um, um, are cited in them and those who uh, publish in them. Um, and now we're making a bit of a transition to a different part of the ecosystem, uh, the book world, um, and in particular, the constitutional book world, which is just one little part of a larger book culture with all sorts of different institutional actors that I was hoping to, to talk with you about. Um, literary agents and pre-publication um, book services and um, uh, uh, newspapers and, and journals that specialize in book reviews and uh, a bottom-up book reader culture uh, uh, organized by Amazon and Goodreads with ordinary people actually um, weighing in on on, uh, uh, the books that they they, um, have read and and are reading. Uh, Book tours, um, uh, going um, in-person book um, events uh, with radio interviewers and and television interviewers, um, the the project not merely of of writing a book um, and researching it, but um, editing it, showing it to your best friend, Andy Lipka, um, getting it published, um, but then bluntly selling the book, marketing the book, which involves not just getting people to buy it, um, truthfully, but getting people to read it. Um, and, oh, let's talk about libraries, because you can buy the book and not read it, and, and the publisher might be happy, but the author not so much. 
you can read the book without buying it. Libraries are really important. And if you read my book, you know, um, in a library, oh, I love you. This is this is great. Um, I, I want to get my ideas into your head so so you can decide um, um, whether you agree or not with me, we can we can then uh, go forward um, and uh, and conti- and and have a, a I would say a better constitutional conversation. If you know my ideas about the constitution, which reflect many years of of of, of academic study, so we haven't really talked about all those parts of um, the ecosystem and how they they contribute to a broader constitutional culture over the years. You know, I would say that that. Uh... Among legal scholars, um, you probably have a greater emphasis on books written for the general public that nevertheless have make legal arguments that might be cited by courts um, than other scholars. Um, and w- so I'm interested in exploring why you've chosen this vehicle um, for yourself. Um, do you think it's, ju- it's because... Um, your particular approach to constitutional law lends itself to to this, that a book, is, you know, be, one might say, well, you know, a book gives you a, a greater chance for a wide angle view. It's a bigger format. You can incorporate more things. And that, that part of originalism is that it needs to have this wide angle view. Is that why you've gone this way? Um, or are there other reasons? Uh, we've talked about this before, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and uh, but I actually think now uh, with your kind um, uh, invitation, I'm going to broaden my answer because um, we've talked about this before. I think there are at least two points um, that maybe three. Um, who knows? Maybe we'll get up to eighteen again. <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, um, about what, for me, why books? One. I believe in popular constitutionalism. I believe the Constitution came from the people, is amendable by the people, and therefore, if that's my view as a constitutional scholar, I I want my ideas about the Constitution to be accessible to the people. The Constitution was short so that ordinary people could read it in newspapers. We've already begun to talk about uh, just that. You you mentioned newspapers, um, op-eds, uh, advocating for its ratification were published in newspapers, the most famous of which we, we um, were collected in a book um, called um, that we called the Federalist or the Federalist Papers. So if the Constitution is a populist project, as I believe it is as a scholar, then yeah, I should be trying to write for ordinary people. And we've talked about how that might not be true if you're an antitrust scholar or a tax scholar, because the nature of those disciplines may not be as intrinsically populist. And if you're a constitutional scholar that doesn't believe in popular constitutionalism, if you think it's only about a Mandarin discourse um, uh, among nine justices or between nine justices and a handful of constitutional scholars at um, tippy-top Ivy League institutions, if that's your view of what constitutional law is, then you're you're maybe not going to be interested in writing books for a general audience. You're going to be interested in let's say, um, contributing to the Supreme Court Review, which is a peer-edited, a faculty-edited um, uh, 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 journal. It actually comes out in book form once a year in which top scholars are writing for each other um, and for the justices. Um, uh, Constitutional Commentary is another one of those uh, faculty-edited uh, journals. And by the way, they're actually going to be publishing um, some of the um, uh, um, uh, things that uh, are gonna, I'm going to be doing next week um, with, with others. There's a little book symposium at the University of Illinois 
um, that's occurring on Constitution Day itself, uh, September 17th, um, and they'll, uh, they're about eight or so scholars who are, who are going to be gathering in, uh, in Champaign, um, uh, Urbana at the University of Illinois to talk about my book. And um, uh, those, their excerpts, or their, their um, um, uh, reviews, as it were, of the book will be published in Constitutional Commentary, which is a faculty-edited journal. But not just faculty-edited journals. There, there are top, um, very prestigious student-edited journals that might be part of an elite discourse on the U.S. Constitution, most preeminently uh, the Harvard Law Review, which has eight issues a year, one of which every year, every November, the lead issue of the Harvard Law Review every year, issue one, is simply devoted to the Supreme Court. It's called the Supreme Court um, um, issue. So, so if, you, if, if that's your view of constitutional law, it's an insider game by top, a few t- top lawyers, most of whom clerk for the Supreme Court and, and who just write for each other and the justices, well, that's one thing. And then it's going to be a law journal world, perhaps. Supreme Court Review, Harvard Law Review, um, Constitutional Commentary. Yeah, law journal. But if you have my view that it actually came from ordinary people who read newspapers um, uh, um, and uh, uh, essays pro and con the Constitution and read the, news, the Constitution itself in newspapers and, and we the people can amend the Constitution. Um, and if that's your view as a scholar, oh, then you're going to try to write for um, a broad so, so we talked about that before. That's because I'm a constitutional populist of a certain sort. Um, and the books are going to work better if they build on uh, scholarly articles that have much more documentation, you know, because otherwise the risk is um, you're saying superficial things or maybe wrong things or the things you're saying in the books aren't cutting edge because cutting edge requires actually a lot of elaboration and it's hard to do in a book for a general audience if you have all the details there. So my... Um, um, uh, secret sauce has been I write detailed articles um, in the first half of my career, and then I distill them in the second half in, in, in books that, that have endnotes um, that can refer you, you, the reader, um, to the details. So that's one thing we talked about before. But here, here's a second thing. I not only am a constitutional populist, I, I'm a constitutional holist. I believe actually it's a mistake to look at this clause or that one or this word in isolation. You have to see the big picture, the whole thing. And so my books have not been um, typically narrow angled expositions. Um, you, you're, you're a photographer and, and you know, you actually introduced me a lot. You're interested in lenses because you're an ophthalmologist and all the rest, you know, the difference between a wide angled shot you know, and, um, and, a, and, a, and a, a very uh, narrow, um, tight uh, shot. I try to write books that, that, you, that describe themselves. This is a word you'll see in my books as panoramic and wide-angled. So I want you to see the big picture. So I wrote a book not about one clause of the First Amendment, the speech clause, the press clause, the petition clause, not about even the whole First Amendment, which would be six different clauses, speech, press, petition, assembly, for exercise and establishment. But I wrote a book about the whole Bill of Rights, um, which is pretty wide-angled, you know, given the scholarship had been much more fine-grained. And then I thought that wasn't actually wide-angled enough because that's really part of the Constitution. So I wrote a book on the whole written Constitution from preamble through Article 7 and then all the amendments from Amendment 1 to Amendment um, uh, uh, 20, 26 and 27. That's um, uh, a wide-angle project. My current project is also wide-angled, but um, from a different point of view, instead of walking the uh, reader through 
the do document textually from start to finish. I'm walking the reader through American history and the constitutional culture um, in three volumes chronologically from 1760 to 1840, the current volume, then volume two will be 1840 to 1920, the next four score years, and then 1920 to 2000. Um, this one's the words that made us, how America becomes America. The next one's going to be the words that made us equal, you know, with Abraham Lincoln and the, and the Reconstruction at the beginning and woman suffrage at the end. And volume three, the words that made us modern um, from 1920 to 2000. Um, so from the revolution to Reagan, and, but that's panoramic. So those are two distinct reasons, I think, for trying to write um, um, uh, books um, one, um, I'm populist, and two, I'm panoramic, and the, the articles wouldn't be populist because they're just in law journals that ordinary people wouldn't read, and the articles typically wouldn't be panoramic because if you're going to be panoramic, you're going to need more than one article to do that or to do it you know, with the um, um, specificity that you need to, to make the panoramic project um, plausible. And as you wrote this book... You know, I was privileged to, you know, sort of be on the outside and, and uh, observing it. The, no, 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 you didn't observe it. You helped me write it at every stage. You pushed back, you know, as you do in the podcast um, on every paragraph, and it would have been a vastly inferior book. You you helped me. At, we, I changed that even the, 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 the parameters of the book, the, 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 you know, the end date of the book, all of that, Andy, was, you know, because of, of, of your very close um um, uh, uh, reading. Well, thank you, but um, I appreciate that. But at, at any rate, I mean, let's uh, let's make it clear: <laughs> it's just it's entirely your book. Um, and uh, but you know, inside outside, the point is that I had a, a bird's eye view of it, or an, uh, you know, a very interesting view of it. And you know, I could see that there were <laughs> there's a lot more involved than sitting down and writing. Um, you know, and you mentioned this whole ecosystem, literary agents, publishers, book tours, newspapers, reviewers, you know, and so forth. Um, and it occurs to, occurred to me as we were talking about um, authority and, and review, you know, when it came to articles and journals and so forth, that uh, this ecosystem in some ways uh, lends authority to, to books because it has to pass through um, so many different filters before it gets to the public and even after it gets to the public before it may get to your desk uh, as a reader uh, because you've, you're going to make the choice to, to purchase it or to read it and that involves all, all kinds of filtering as well. Um, so would you say that the, um, so when you compare this ecosystem uh, for books to that of let's say scholarship or, or so forth, um, would you say that they are they're basically similar or they're basically different in fundamental ways? Um, and does that add authority to books in some way? Um, so I think they are quite distinct. They they obviously overlap. My books build on my articles, um, um, which are often cited in the the endnotes. Articles, of course, themselves um, cites to books as well as to other articles. So. Um, there's a symbiosis here, but it is a different niche. Um, and within the book world, I want to say something special about books on law or at least constitutional law, which I know the best. So other books 
you can say, let a thousand flowers bloom. Okay, there's this take on the Beatles and that book on the Rolling Stones, and they can all be good books, and they can actually offer very different perspectives, and you can read them all, and that's fine. But law, constitutional law, is a little bit different from that because if two people are saying opposed things about what the law correctly understood really is, they cannot both be right. It's not quite a let a thousand flowers bloom um, uh, world. Um, sometimes it might be um, uh, where people, two people can be um, right, but not if they're saying contradictory things about what the law rightly understood is. They could both be wrong. Um, uh, because maybe one of them is right in result, but not for the right reasons, for example. And the other one is, is wrong in result as well as the reasons. They could both be wrong. But if one person says the law is X and one person says the law is not X, well, now who's right? And that's where authority comes in in a big way. And there are lots of books that are out there that I think they're not useless. They're worse than useless. They're negative because they're actually saying wrong things that are taking up people's time and money, teaching them things that are actually incorrect, that they're maybe acting upon in various ways. And, and, and that's bad for the world, actually. Um, in, in net, net. Now, you, you, I'm not saying they should be censored, they should be um, restricted, but I am saying, actually, um, I'm going to give you ideas uh, uh, as a reader about how you should choose what to um, read. And this is less about what to buy, okay? Because books are actually not that expensive. You can get them um, from a library for free. Certain books, lots of books, they come out in paperback. And actually, you know, for the amount of, they're, they're not so expensive if you pick up a $15 paperback or something, you know, in, in, in the world today compared to a bottle of wine, you know, or a, C, a, you know, a, 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 a CD um, um, of, your, of your favorite um, um, musical artist or whatever. The real expense is not the out-of-pocket expense for the acquisition. It's the time you are actually spending experiencing the book, whether as an e-book um, or, or as an audio book um, or actually reading the thing the old-fashioned way in, in a print book. These are hours of your life that you could actually be spent do, um, using for other purposes. That, that, so that's actually expensive in a way, um, unless you're just a speed reader. Um, and my claim is um, that um, a wise reader needs to actually um, figure out what to spend their time on. Is a book even worth reading at all? Um, and, and if it is, which book, um, you know, if they're, if they're 10 on a particular subject? And that's where actually some of these intermediaries do come into play. Ah, who is the literary agent for the book, this book? Is this literary agent credible or not? What other books have they actually agented? Who's the publisher? Is it um, a, a major publisher or um, is it a minor one? If a minor one, does it have actually an impressive niche? Is this the kind of book that this minor publisher has done actually very well, even though it's not one of the... The, the big five publishers, what have you, in this niche is actually particularly well regarded. What did the major pre-publication reviewing services think of the book? Did they review it at all? And, and what did they think? Did they give it a starred review? And these are, um, by pre-publication reviewers, I'm referring especially to Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, but also to, to Library Journal and, and Booklist. Um, 
what do the major um, uh, journals uh, that uh, newspapers that actually have a niche in in book reviewing think? What does um, the New York Review of Books think, or the Los Angeles Review of Books, or the Wall Street Journal that has an excellent um, um, uh, uh, tradition of, of book reviewing, or the or the New York Times, or the Washington Post, or the Christian Science Monitor, or, the, or Foreign Affairs, or the Economist? Um, and that's for a certain seri- a kind of, 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 of book that I'm interested in, which is sort of serious nonfiction, maybe argumentative nonfiction. Finally, what do readers think? And, and, and readers like you. So you might want so um, um, if you click on your favorite Amazon books that you've read, it will tell you um, people who liked this book, who bought this book. Here are other books they, they bought. And then you can read their reviews. People, readers kind of like you. What do they think about this book on Amazon or, or Goodreads or what have you? So these are some criteria, but I'd like to explore them perhaps in a little more detail and get your take on it. So, for example, um, you know, you mentioned just just as one example, you mentioned pre-publication review services, you know, Kirkus and so forth. This may not really be that that well known to our, our audience. Um, for example, I didn't really differentiate between. Um, pre-publication reviews and post-publication reviews. I didn't really know, understand this differentiation before I experienced it with with the life cycle of your book. So perhaps it might be interesting to to get your you know insight into it as an author and as a consumer of a sophisticated consumer of books. Not just on that, but perhaps we go through the life cycle of the book. Yeah. Um, so um, l- uh, uh, let me first talk about pre-publication reviews because um, I got a fun story on that, and then I'll I'll tell you about the life cycle. So um, my first um, book for a really a general audience uh, came out in, in, in 1998. It was an academic press, Yale University Press, um, but it came out on what's called the trade side of the press. I had written an earlier book. Um, uh, and, and, I'll, and so then in the next set of stories, I'll, I'll tell you about the first um, book, um, which was also Yale Press, but it was a much more um, narrowly targeted book to lawyers and judges. Um, um, and, and it didn't sell very many copies. But um, this 1998 book, The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, aimed at a broader audience. Um, it's, ca- um, it's called a trade book because it sells at a trade discount. Okay, so the major retailers actually um, can uh, get the book at a, at a deep discount um, from the, the, the retail price. Um, and so it was the first book that actually got reviewed by some major pre-publication services. And um, the two biggest are Kirkus um, and Publishers Weekly. Maybe not in that order, really, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. Publishers Weekly would be Coke and, and Kirkus would be Pepsi or something like that. What do you mean by pre-publication review? I mean that the, um, uh, my book publisher sends these services, the, the manuscript, before it's published, they read it and they write basically a one-paragraph or two-paragraph um, analysis. And who's they? Who writes the reviews? Um, they, a, a whole bunch of, of, of folks, not that well paid, um, um, necessarily, um, who are just book nerds and, and, uh, the book nerds have areas of special interest and specialization. So there might be hundreds of reviewers that, that, 
that Publishers Weekly or the Kirkus kind of has um, um, on file. And so they would look at my book and they'd say, what kind of book is this? Is this a book about hummingbirds? Is this a book about um, uh, um, uh, uh, nu- uh, about physics? Is, is this a, a, a book about um, the Beatles? What kind of book is this? Ah, this is a book of constitutional history. Hmm, is it more of a constitutional book? Is it more of a history book? We've got 20 people um, um, who, who do sort of history and or constitutional law. You know, which, which person do we think, you know, should do this one? Ah, let's get Smith to do it. He wrote um, three other reviews for us in years past um, um, on books that seem similar to this one. And does okay. he sign the review? Do you, do you know who the reviewer is? For Library Journal and Booklist, I think yes. For Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, I think no. Um, so now you're relying, Journal, on, so now um, you're relying on, on the staff of, of Kirkus and Publishers Weekly to provide, uh, you know, so I'm, do, I'm, I'm trying to approach this from the point of view of authority. From the, from the reader's point of view, you know, how much authority should we give to Publishers Weekly and Kirkus? And now the question there is, all right, who's making the decisions? Yes, yes. And, 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 and they have a certain, so um, m- many of these people are librarians and especially for library journal, and, and they're trying to make different um, assessments. Library journal is especially written by librarians for librarians. And here's the question, should you acquire this book? Should you spend your limited library dollars to buy this book? Are the people who use your library going to um, want this book? I'm going to read this book, going to borrow this book. And so Library Journal would often say recommended for every library or recommended only for libraries that special that have, have certain specialty niches for, for uh, research university libraries or all college libraries, which are different from, you know, a local public library. For libraries with big collections, yes, but a small collection, maybe not. This is too much of a specialty book. So, so Library Journal is especially sending signals to librarians. Kirkus and Publishers Weekly are especially sending signals to, um, um, they used to be retail bookstores, to Barnes and Nobles. And, you know, back in the day, they used to be, you know, uh, B. Dalton's and, you know, all sorts of other. Double Day. Uh, uh, Brentano's. Um, independent bookstores um, uh, and, um, and 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 uh, book uh, retail chains. So, um, how many copies should should you buy this book at all? How many copies should you should you buy? Should you put it um, in the front window or not? You know who's going to you know. Um, so so Kirkus and Library Journal uh, and and Publisher Week are also sometimes making predictions about how many copies this will initially sell. They may have some sense of how much money the publisher is putting into the book um, for for marketing and other purposes. How big the initial print run might be likely to be. So um um, um but it's also sending signals. Uh, uh, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus especially to, in effect, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, um, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. Should you assign um, a reviewer to review this book? Is this book likely to be an important book in the culture? Um, And that reviewer, if you get a New York Times review, it's not going to be two paragraphs. It's going to be 20 paragraphs. Um, um, but, But the New York Times... It needs to decide, you know, they have a, a weekly book review um, 
section in the Sunday magazine in the Sunday um, uh, edition, but they also have daily reviews, especially online. They need to, again, they, they can't review every single book that's published. And so they have to figure out, is this worth reviewing? And they take their cues from Publishers Weekly and Kirkus. Now, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, I said, I don't think tell you the name of the particular person who did the review, but they're in this business and they have, you know, a reputation. Um, and if they consistently mispredict which books are going to be the, the, the best sellers and the talked about books, then they're um, in the long run uh, gonna gonna take a hit, and 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 people won't. Um, uh, uh, so so they have a business model, um, and Library Journal has a slightly different business model, and um, and and they have different niches. But let me tell you the story about because um, uh, because they're not remotely infallible, um, and especially you know an author, it's it's one and a half paragraphs on your book that often comes down to one paragraph of basic description, and then a one sentence verdict at the end, you know, uh, and, 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 and also and star or no star, right. That was a, a 10 to 15, maybe 20% of, of the books reviewed by Kirkus and, and published weekly earn a star, which is a, a, just a very um, blunt signal. Ah, this is a really special book in, 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 in its field. And if you get stars from both Kirkus and publishers weekly, Oh, that's a good pre-publication sign. So let's take my 1998 book. Um, 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 and, 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 and the people that are review, reviewing it are probably not the scholars. They're, they're more like um, 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 uh, uh, maybe just interested readers. My Bill of Rights book. Here's what Kirkus said, but here's what was their last line. You know, and this is my first book for a trade audience. You know, Kirkus is reading. Um, impressive. This is their line, quote. Impressive legal hair splitting that may strike general readers as pointless. Unquote. Okay, so they're already saying, "Look, legal experts might find this interesting, but general readers, God, this is a bo- god awful boring book." Okay, so and, and and maybe they were right. Although, truth be told, that book has done very well commercially. It sold all in probably thirty to thirty five thousand copies. Um, so so maybe Kirkus got it wrong. Okay, next book. Um, and I'm not sure anyone else reviewed it pre-publication. Uh, Library Journal liked it. You know, the librarians liked it. But Kirkus, which is a little bit more pop, you know, basically said, this is a boring, you know, Ivy League type of pointy head book. The next big book comes out with Random House. It's 2005. Um, and for this one, I have a literary agent. And um, a literary agent that has a, a very impressive reputation in, in the business. And I'll tell you how I picked the agent when we, when we go back and, and, and we'll talk about other folks in, in, in the ecosystem and how I picked that literary agent and how maybe more important that literary agent agency picked me because you know, I got to get them to be willing to take me on it as a client. Um, but, but a pre-publication re, um, service, Kirkus Publishers Weekly, they know certain things. They know it's coming out with Random House or Yale University Press or what have you. They may even know what the initial print run is likely to be, if the publisher is betting big on the book or not. They know who the literary agent for the book is and that literary agent's reputation to that literary agent. Um, um, uh, has they, have they published big books before, you know, in the same field or, or similar fields? So they already have a few cues. They know a little bit about me, the author. They, they, they Google me. Ah, he's an Ivy League professor. Oh, you know, he um, he's cited by justices. Oh, he's cited by other law professors. So so they they're looking at cues as well. In addition to to reading the manuscript, they they have some sense of 
who the author might be, what the other author's books might be, what their commercial track record is once you have a second or third book, what their critical track record um, is, were those earlier books well-received by, by, by peers, um, were they well-reviewed or not, um, did they sell lots of copies? They, they have access, oh, I haven't told you about um, book scan data. They have access to um, sometimes we'll information. Uh, yeah, about how many uh, 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 books um, previous, uh, uh, how many copies of the author's previous books have, have, have actually sold, have, have libraries acquired them and the like. Okay, so now it's 2005, I've got a literary agent and a very well-respected, uh, they're called writer's representatives, they're a married couple, Glenn Hartley and Lin Chu. Lin Chu is a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School. Um, Glenn Hartley is a very impressive um, and, and, and intellectual folk uh, person, and they have a reputation for uh, publishing really top-notch academics. Don Kagan, the late Don Kagan, the late Harold Bloom, and others, um, D- David Brooks, um, Clarence Thomas, uh, Boutros, Boutros, Dali, you know, um, so, so, so they know, oh, he's got a, a top-flight literary agent. Um, this is Random House, which is one of the big publishers. His editor at Random House is Robert Loomis, now the late Robert Loomis, who has six Pulitzer, uh, who has published six Pulitzer Prize winning books, you know, published books by Shelby Foote and Maya Angelou and, and, um, and William Sapphire and, and Daniel Borston and um, Jonathan Haar um, and, uh, uh, as I mentioned, Shelby Foote and um, um, Woody Allen. Um, okay, so um, 2005, Publishers Weekly um, gives it um, not just a starred review, but a boxed and starred review. It's their, their highest um, assessment. So, um, and Kirkus didn't give it a starred review, um, um, but it, it didn't, it, but I've gone, here's, here's what Kirkus said. Kirkus is a little bit more pop, um, and, and, and this was a 700-page book, you know, with all the end notes. 700-page, um, I'm opening it right now. Um, yeah, 650 pages. So, remember what they said the, about the first book, impressive legal hair splitting that may strike general readers as pointless. Here's what they say about the second one. And remember, P.W. Publishers Weekly just loves it. Um, um, Kirkus says, data rich, but seldom ponderous. Okay, so I'm gone from being pointless to ponderous, but but only seldom ponderous. (laughs) Okay, so on my gravestone, it's going to say, he was only seldom ponderous. (laughs) Okay, Um, now, why am I laughing at all this? Because... They had a point. It was a kind of a dense book. It did quite well commercially and critically. It actually has sold now all in about 100,000 copies um, in its various forms, um, uh, paperback, hardbound, e-book, audio book. It's um, still in print, this book, 16 oh, years absolutely. later. And, and you can get it um, at you know for like 11 bucks or something on Amazon. It's, it's, again, um, uh, for, for m- many hours of, of, of experience. I many hope. hours. In enjoyment, um, um, it's it's not expensive, and you can get it in any, any library. All public libraries have this book. Um, this is America's I, Constitution of Biography. You're talking yeah, about, um, and um, and um, I've even seen people. You know, um, my, my dream. This is my also my dream. I'm gonna get. Um, I'm gonna board an air a, a flight. I'm gonna sit down. And the person next to me is going to be reading a copy of my book. This has never yet happened, but this was my dream. But I have bumped into people in airports carrying my book, you know, 
Um, so, so I'm, I'm getting close. My other dream is I'm going to actually be in the airport bookstore because they only have a very few books. So that's when you've really, that's when you made it to the Ron Chernow, David McCullough, Bob Woodward um, sort of level, um, which I haven't quite yet, but, but these are my little dreams. Okay. Uh, the most recent book, Kirkus and Publishers Weekly both gave it a starred review. They're their, their highest um, mark of approval. And, and that was a signal to bookstores to buy the book. It was a signal to uh, major reviewers um, post-publication, um, like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, uh, um, the New York Review of Books, the Los Angeles Review of Books, to, to actually um, assign a reviewer and pay someone to, to review um, the book in, in more elaborate fashion. And, and it's a signal to, um, if you go on Amazon, or uh, uh, you, you'll see little um, blurbs from Publishers Weekly and, and Kirkless, and they, it will say in parenthesis, starred review. This is, if you're a certain kind of sophisticated reader, you, th- those are informational cues and shortcuts for you. People who are in the business are saying, this is actually one of our, our top picks for the year. At the end of the year, the Washington Post and the New York Times are going to come up with lists of uh, the 100 um, most um, important books of the year, the, um, uh, the, uh, fiction and nonfiction or something. And, and if you're double-starred in Publishers Weekly and Kirkus, that's a very good portent that you're going to be re- de- de- recognized as one of the top 100 books of the year. Um, by uh, these major publications, it's a pretty good predictor of of prizes that you that that the book may be likely um, to win. Oh, we haven't talked about book prizes, for example. All part of this book ecosystem, which is different than um, uh, uh, specialty journals. In terms of of these pre-publication um, sources, you said basically that uh, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus are talking to bookstores. Yes. Now, has that changed? Because now, if you know, if you go on Amazon, you have access to the Publishers Weekly and Kirkus reviews on Amazon as they come out. So, so that these reviews, which previously might have mostly been read, unless you bought Publishers Weekly as a, you know, a magazine or something like that weekly, which probably you would only do if you were a member of the trade. Um, you wouldn't really have access to these reviews ahead of time. With the internet, you know, it's different. And then specifically with Amazon as a place where these things are gathered. So you don't have to go to the Publishers Weekly website to see a review. You can go to, you can look up a particular book, you know, on Amazon and see it. So that would seem to me to be uh, a change in who their reviews circulate to. And so does that mean that that they've recognized that by writing to a different audience at this point? That's utterly brilliant. I think you're probably right. Um, you know, uh, we, a lot of independent booksellers are no longer in business. Um, the, there's increasing concentration in the market. There are fewer publishers than before, especially at, 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 at the top. Um, used to be the big six. Now, they're, I think we're really down to the big four as a practical matter. And the big four, you see, because Random House merged with Penguin. Um, and um, all sorts of smaller imprints got gobbled up by Hachette. Um, and there's Simon and Schuster, and there's Harper Collins, and there's Macmillan or something. But I think there's a, a merger afoot actually, and there's smaller ones that are very well respected that have great niches. If you're an academic, Norton, for example, which that kind of does crossover textbooks and and and, and trade books. 
Um, textbooks have a different kind of ecosystem. Textbooks are assigned by professors who may be less price sensitive. They're, they're uh, requiring this for their students. But yeah, if there are fewer book publishers and there's concentration in the industry and there are fewer booksellers, if Amazon has a much bigger portion of the actual market and, and, and fewer independent bookstores and just fewer um, bricks and mortar bookstores, of course, that's going to be affecting other parts of the ecosystem in complex ways that I don't fully understand. And remember, Kirkus and PW are writing not just for um, the, the retailers, but also for the, the libraries, the acquisition departments. And, and even for Amazon, Amazon needs to decide how to, how to price the book. Um, here are at least two Amazon models. They're going to give you a deep discount on the book. The book retails for $40, and they're going to sell it actually for $19.99, which they did pre-publication for my book, and try to get, get a lot of sales. Low margin, lots of sales. Um, after a certain point, they um, cranked up the price to $29.99, which is still $10 off list price. But, but remember, they were selling it for $19.99. Now they're selling it for $29.99. Just this week, they dropped it to $25.50. Um, they've got complex algorithms about whether they're going to try to do lots of sales um, and low margin or fewer sales and high margins in the medical world, for example. You know, a big medical textbook might sell for $400, um, it would have a lot of um, really high resolution color photographs, for example, of, of this or that, or the other thing. It might not sell very many copies, um, but you're going to make a lot of money per copy. So maybe it's going to sell um, a really great medical textbook, 5,000 copies maybe, um, but it's going to be a margin of $50 a copy or something like that. That would be a huge, where, so you make $250,000, you're, you're making $50 a copy off of 5,000 copies. Contrast that with a different model, or you're going to sell 50,000 copies um, and make five, $5 a copy. The same way of getting $250,000, you know, but very different kind of model. And, of course, these things themselves are changing because of electronic copies and so forth, like in the medical field, for example. Um, one of the reasons that keeps that print runs stay low is that uh, people buy used books because they're so expensive, you know, on, on the first go-round. Um, um, and, and, and that's connected to um, another thing. I, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you I, honestly what I think the good, the bad, and the ugly of, 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 of my books are. They're, they're long, okay? So if you don't want that, don't, you know, then I'm not for you. Um, but since you mentioned that, my books have what's called a long tail because I'm not writing about. So the, the Brethren is a great book and it's a classic um, of its field, but it's about the burger court in a particular period. And so at a certain point, it becomes a little bit dated. Um, whereas if I write a, a book that's not about the Supreme Court at a particular nanosecond, but about the founding um, which, and, and the, the Constitution's text, which continues to actually be the supreme law of the land, yeah, in 150 years, the book may be dated because we're going to have 10 new amendments or something like that that maybe change things dramatically. But 
Um, my um, book, America's Constitution and Biography, is still selling several thousand copies a year because the American Constitution hasn't changed very much, you know, since 2005. The case law has changed very much. Why do we care about the Burger Court cases now that we have, you know, the Rehnquist Court cases and the Robert Court cases and, and all sorts of, you know, we, we're talking today about Obamacare or about um, the Biden mandates or something. Um, they're different ways of actually getting to 100,000, you know, um, copies. Um, one would be selling um, 75,000 copies in the first year. That would be a mega blockbuster for a serious nonfiction book. Um, but then let's say 2,000, co- 2,500 copies a year for the next 10 years. You get to 100,000, 75,000 for the first year, 2,500, you know, for the next 10 years, something. Well, that would... That, that that's kind of um, a different model than let's say America's Constitution and Biography, which sold maybe twenty five thousand copies in its first year, but then for the next ten years sold five thousand copies apiece, uh, a year, and then after that still s- selling twenty five hundred copies or something because it's got a longer tail. So that's the kind of at the end of the book's life. So um, yes, you know, just this one discussion about pre-publication book reviewers, as you see, has taken us, you know, pretty in-depth, but I'll bet that a lot of our listeners didn't know much about that, so it's quite interesting. So why don't we go back and look at the at the cycle of the book, and you can sort of provide your insights um, at, uh, at each step. So why don't we take the first couple um, now, and then, you know, we can uh, continue, I think, with a second part of this episode, because we'd uh, we don't want to go on and on and on uh, this right. week. Yeah, um, we haven't even got to the book tour, so maybe next time I'll, re- I'll give you a, a full report on the book tour. Yes, which will be fun. But um, so where do you consider the life cycle of the book to begin? Ultimately, I guess, with the author. And um, uh, with the author as reader. Okay, if I want to write a book, um, I, I think, you know, just a lot of the world is somewhat um, imitative. Um, you learn how to be a great ophthalmologist by studying under other ophthalmologists who, who teach you the, the, the trade. And you're an apprentice and, and you, you learn the ropes. Um, the book is this amazing invention. It's been around for thousands of years um, um, in its current kind of technological format, as distinct, let's say, from the scroll or a pure oral tradition a la Homer. Okay. Yeah, somebody used told me that uh, Alexander the Great carried the Iliad around and put it under his pillow, which is kind of absurd since he would have had to four, have 40 scrolls under his pillow in order to do that. And think about a scroll. A scroll actually start in the middle and it goes sort of from right to left. Um, um, that's actually a different even way of reading, starting from the middle and working out to the edges. Um, the modern book, Gutenberg style, has a, is, is not um, handwritten. It's printed. Um, and it's paginated. Um, and, of course, you and I, because we're Yaleys, know that um, one of the, the most beautiful um, copies of, there are only, I think, 30 extant copies of the Gutenberg, and there are only a few in the New World, and Yale has one of them, and it's, it's the jewel of the crown in the, in the Beinecke Rare Book Library collection, you know, on display in a special case, and they, they every, uh, which is temperature controlled and humidity controlled, and every few days they actually turn a page so that the spine actually ages evenly and all the rest. So, okay, 
But the paginated printed book has been around for thousands, you know, you know, uh, hundreds of years, you know, not thousands, but the, the, the paginated printed book, it's, it's an amazing format. But here's my point. Um, how did, how did Akhil Amar book, um, how did Akhil Amar's books originate? Well, ultimately, I would say, you know, from a certain selfish point of view with Amar, um, but Amar not as a writer, but as a reader. Amar is, you know, from age five being introduced to books. And he spends, I spend every summer um, starting sixth grade, um, I would get on every, every day in the summer, almost, almost every day, I would get on my bike and ride. It was about a, a mile or so um, uh, to uh, the public uh, uh, library in Walnut Creek, California, and, and I'd, I'd check out a book, you know, um, and, and they even had this little program where um, if you read five books in the summer, you'd get, you know, a, a, a silver uh, star. And if you read 25 books, you'd get a gold star. And every time you, you know, read a book and you checked it out and you returned it and you said, oh, I read it, you know, they'd, they'd check a little box. And when you got to five, you got your first star, then you got your second silver star, and then when you got to 25, you got, you, know, you remember the gold star summer club or something. And I did this every summer. And, and I read all kinds of books, you know, fiction, nonfiction. Um, so, um, and then I get to a great college. Um, where um, uh, my first day of Yale College in my introductory uh, American history class, I'm being assigned books by Edmund Morgan um, and Bernard Balin. And those are the same books that feature really prominently in chapters one, two, and three of America's, um, on, uh, of the new book, excuse me, um, uh, the words that made us, and I'm being introduced to also that first day of Yale College, um, uh, the uh, works by Balin's protege, Gordon Wood, and I get assigned that book in law school, um, um, uh, Wood's first book, The Creation of the American Republic, which was his doctoral dissertation, and I mention that because as we're going to talk about um, uh, at the end of this um, episode. Um, Gordon Wood has a new book out um, just this month, um, and he's coming on our podcast, um, and, and that's going to be sooner rather than later. He's already agreed. We've got a date set up for that. Okay, so Akhil Amar book author begins as Akhil Amar book reader who begins to develop a taste for books and develop his own ideas about what are his favorite books and why. And then as a law professor, I begin by writing. I get hired at the age of, a very young age. I'm, I'm 26 years old when I first start teaching. Um, and um, I don't write books. I write articles because that's the unit of, con the standard unit of intellectual contribution in law. Um, that's not true in a history department. In the history department, you actually get a Ph.D., you turn that you, you write a doctoral dissertation and you turn that into your first book. And yes, you might write for history journals, um, articles, but at the end of the day in history, you're kind of, if you at the, at, 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 where supply meets demand at the highest level, Brown university, Yale university, Harvard, Princeton, the places that we talked about before, basically the, the greatest um, uh, historians um, have produced really important books. 
articles, but, but really books are the unit. That's not true in physics. Um, uh, Albert Einstein's theory of relativity, I think, is five pages long or something. Um, so the unit of contribution varies within a university from discipline to discipline. History, it's the book. Physics, you know, it's, you know, a brilliant essay. Um, in law, it's actually the law journal article. Um, is, was, is basically uh, the, uh, the standard unit of contribution. Um, and that's what I did for the first 15 years, from 1985 to 2000, as I banged out article after article after article, um, nearly 100 in all, maybe even more than 100. Um, and we've talked about that before, and several of them are highly cited. Three are among the 100 most cited articles of all time in the law literature by academics, um, and they're, they're also, by, admit several of them, quite well cited by um, a, a judges. And at a certain point, I make the transition, I begin to make the transition to becoming a book author rather than an, a, um, an article author, and I basically stopped writing law review articles in 2000 um, and switch over to books. And here's how it happened. Um, uh, we talked about my wacky Fourth Amendment ideas, that, that, that uh, um, warrants aren't invariably required, that um, uh, probable cause isn't a requirement of each and every valid search and seizure. Think about metal detectors at airports or stop and frisk, and the exclusionary rule is actually made up. That was an article in the Harvard Law Review in 1994, and I began to think deeply about it, and I said, well, where did the exclusionary rule come from um, if it didn't come from the Fourth Amendment? And the answer is it actually came from the Fourth Amendment in tandem with the Fifth. The Fifth Amendment actually self-incrimination clause is a rule of exclusion of a certain sort. It said you can't be compelled to be a witness in your own criminal case. We're going to exclude compelled witnessing from a criminal case, and that means you can't be forced to take the stand, but it also means if someone before your criminal case somehow forced you to talk, let's say in a police station or something like that, we won't allow the transcript of that forced um, uh, discussion to be introduced in the courtroom. It's a rule of criminal, of exclusion, of evidence of a certain sort. And um, so how did that fit with my Fourth Amendment ideas? I said, ah, here's how it fits. The Fifth Amendment self-incrimination clause is a rule of exclusion, but only of testimony, of witnessing. And why is that okay? Because compelled testimony actually might be unreliable. Someone might confess or be thought to confess um, um, to something that they actually didn't do, but they were tricked by the prosecutor. They're, they're not very articulate. They, they stumble. They say something in anger. Um, that, that, so, so words are excluded under the Fifth Amendment of a certain sort, compelled testimony, for reasons that have to do with protecting innocent people against erroneous conviction. Um, but the exclusionary rule in the Fourth Amendment doesn't do that because what you're excluding under the Fourth Amendment is reliable physical evidence that doesn't have the same concern. It's, it's um, O.J. Simpson's fingerprints on a bloody knife with Nicole Brown's blood and Ron Goldman's blood on the knife. That's reliable in a way that um, compelled confessions might not be because, you know, time immemorial, people have been forced to or tricked into confessing to things that they actually didn't do. Ah, that's a separate article. Fifth Amendment first principles. Here's what the self-incrimination clause is really all about, and here's why it was a mistake to smush it together with the Fourth Amendment to come up with the exclusionary rule. Yes, 
um, um, certain things should be excluded, but only witnesses, witnessing words, not reliable physical evidence. And there's a case that actually tests this proposition. It's called Schmerber versus California. Here's the case. If the government sticks a needle in my arm and pulls out my blood against my will, can that blood be introduced against me in a criminal case to prove that I had a blood alcohol level of 0.2 and therefore I'm guilty of drunk driving? Or I had a certain ABDO blood type or DNA that matches the blood at the crime scene. Is that a violation of the Fifth Amendment? Have I been made... Uh, uh, to, has the government compelled me to be a witness against myself in a criminal case? And the Supreme Court in this landmark Warren Court decision, Schmerber versus California, says no, because um, blood isn't really like witnessing because it's reliable physical evidence. Okay, so aha. Actually, now I actually have a theory of the Fifth Amendment and I have a theory of the Fourth Amendment and why it's a mistake to smush them together. That's two different articles that I write. Now, of course, you know what's next. I write an article um, um, on Fourth Amendment first principles. I write an article on Fifth Amendment first principles. So what's next? Sixth Amendment first principles. Or you could write Fourth Amendment second principles. <laughs> I, I could, um, but I'm never into second principles. Uh, you, you know, I want to get to the foundations, the fundament of everything. So here's how it relates to Sixth Amendment, because I'm starting to take my own ideas seriously what are their entailments? What are their implications? What would count as a counter argument if I were right? You know, what else would need to be right um, for everything? Because I'm panoramic. I want to see how things fit together. I'm not just, I want to do serious clause-based analysis, but I want to see how the clauses fit together or don't. So Sixth Amendment first principles, here's an analogy. Um, the court has said, you have a right to speedy trial, but if you don't get a speedy trial in time, then you can never be prosecuted. Even if you're guilty as all get out. And I say, oh my God, that's the mother of all exclusionary rules. If you're guilty, that's a huge windfall. You can never be prosecuted. If you're innocent and you would have been found innocent in a, you know, a delayed trial, um, um, yes, that's good that you're, you, you know, um, uh, but you're not, you're, you're undercompensated because actually, um, uh, so if you're guilty, you get this big windfall. And if you're innocent, what about the fact that they really did violate your, your Sixth Amendment rights? If, if the only remedy you get is fine, you know, um, uh, you can't be convicted, but you weren't going to be convicted anyway. That, that undercompensate. Here's what you should get. You should get damages for the fact that they actually deprived you of your, your speedy trial. They dragged your name through the mud um, um, for a long period of time before you finally got your vindication. That would follow, see, from my Fourth Amendment ideas. Innocent people aren't getting properly compensated under an exclusionary rule. Guilty people are getting this um, uh, windfall. So um, uh, the Constitution, in my view, is about protecting innocent people from erroneous conviction. And, and guilty people sometimes go free, but only um, as a side effect of our effort to protect innocent people as such. Okay, and I can tell you a theory now with the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule and, uh, and the Fifth Amendment and self-incrimination and the Sixth Amendment and speedy trial. Ah, well, you know what I have now? I didn't start out to do it. I have a book. I have a book on the Constitution and criminal procedure, first principles, Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. And that was my first book. 
and it was Yale University Press, and it was basically law review articles strung together, not really re, um, revised very much. And it was for a narrow audience, for lawyers, defense attorneys. Oh, I have some things that defense attorneys would like, um, and some things that they won't, getting rid of the exclusion error, but some things that are actually um, they're really going to love and, um, and, and, and do. Um, a theory of the confrontation clause that, that, that gave them more rights to confrontation that couldn't be balanced away and other things. So, so prosecutors would find it interesting. Defense attorneys, um, whether private or public defenders, would find it interesting. Definitely um, uh, judges, and especially, especially, especially justices. I was mainly writing for nine people because they're the ones who made this mess and they're the ones who could fix it by modifying their precedents, just like we talked about in Roe versus Wade, how precedents can get revised or even um, overruled and how Brown revises Plessy versus Ferguson, for example. So that was a book mainly for nine people saying, here's what you've been doing wrong. Here's how to fix it. Yale Press published it. It wasn't a trade press book. Maybe it sold 3,000 copies over the years, not very many. Um, so it's more like your medical textbook, um, a few, a small audience. So that's, then um, I wrote um, another book that didn't begin as a book. It began as a law review article, a big panoramic law review article. Um, again, uh, highly cited, um, as was Fourth Amendment First Principles. It was called The Bill of Rights as a Constitution. It appeared in the Yale Law Journal um, in um, 1991 or so. And it's all about the original Bill of Rights and how it's not how, you, how we've been taught to think about it today. And then my students said, well, even if you're right, Professor, um, uh, doesn't the 14th Amendment change everything? And I said, hmm, I got to think about that. So I spent another summer and I studied the fourth amend- uh, 14th Amendment and how it interacted with the Bill of Rights and that became a second article the Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment, published as a sequel in the Yale Law Journal. When I had those two, two, each was a 100-page law review article or close to it, I realized, oh, my goodness, I kind of have half of a book here. If I reworked these articles and, 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 and fleshed them out some more, I could have a book on what the Bill of Rights meant at the founding and what it meant actually after the Civil War. But to do that right, I'm going to need to learn more about the criminal procedure amendments, which I kind of gave short shrift to. So that's why I wrote a series of articles beginning 1994 about the Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment. That actually became the book that got published first. But once I had done all of that, I actually had enough to rework these big articles on the Bill of Rights um, into, I reworked them considerably um, and turned them into this book. So the the uh, Constitution Criminal Procedure First Principles was just law review articles um, slapped together as distinct chapters. Um, the Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction, I took two big articles in the Yale Law Journal that had been well received by uh, the scholarly community, reworked them into 12 chapters, added a lot of new stuff, and, and that really was a book book. And it was Yale University Press, once again, um, but on the trade publication side, they thought general readers might be interested in this. Kirkus was a little dubious, impressive legal hair splitting that may strike general readers as pointless. Um, but actually, it's done rather well, critically and commercially. Um, all in, it sold, I think, about um, thirty to 35,000 copies, which is not bad for a serious academic book. So that's my second book. Now, here's the big transition. 
that book did well enough critically and commercially that friends told me you should get a literary agent. It's time to actually try to make the leap to the random houses of the world or the Hachette book group, um, you know, the, 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 the big publishers, not just university presses. So uh, how do I go about doing that? I think about which books I most respect that are like mine, which authors I most respect who are kind of like me, and do they have literary agents, and who, who did they hire as a literary agent? Just like I'm trying to write books. That Bill of Rights, Creation, and Reconstruction is trying to be a book like a Gordon Wood book, like a Bernard Bailey book, like an Ed Morgan book. Well, now, actually, if I want to get published by a random house, I need a literary agent, um, and I need them to, to, to hire me. Uh, as I, even as I'm hiring them. And I'm going to need to pay them 15%, by the way. That's the standard commission. And my wife once asked me, you know, why are we paying them? You know, uh, 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 her nickname, Habdu, you know, sweet husband. Why are we paying them 15%? I said, because they make us 100%. Because without them, I actually wouldn't get the offer from Random House, for example. So um, I look around and say, who am I? I'm a serious academic who wants academic credibility. I don't want to write a pop book that diminishes, you know, about, um, look, I I love Amy Chua, but her pop book about um, tiger parenting is not quite a scholarly book. It's a book by a scholar, but it's not itself a scholarly book. The way her great books, um, uh, World on Fire um, and, and, um, and Day of Empire are great scholarly books. I want to write... I'm writing scholarly books as a scholar. I don't want an agent who basically um, uh, does pop books for a general audience that are going to you know, lose me credibility um, as a scholar. I want to be like Don Kagan, my great um, uh, uh, mentor and teacher undergrad, who was a great a professor, a Sterling professor of history, the preeminent expert on ancient Athens, who wrote about eight books about um, ancient um, Greece, and they were massive commercial successes and critical successes. Who was his literary agent? Writers' representatives. I want to be kind of like Harold Bloom, the preeminent scholar at Yale um, of literary criticism, probably the preeminent lit- literary critic of the late 20th century, also Sterling Professor um, at Yale, um, and were his literary agents. Oh, uh, writers' representatives, Glenn Hartley and Lin Chu. So I looked around and said, I'm not yet a Sterling professor. You know, one day, you know, maybe I would want to be like Don Kagan. I'm, I'm not yet at the level of Don Kagan and um, Harold Bloom, but they're role models for me. Theirs is, you know, like the kind of career that I want to have, a serious academic writing, serious books for that, that simultaneously impress experts and scholars, but that reach a more general audience. Bloom has done it. Kagan has done it. Who have they done it with? Because they actually have different publishers. Oh, but what's their common denominator? They have the same literary agent. And by the way, the person who who turned me on to this is a former student of mine, Ed Lazarus, um, um, Yale Law School graduate, who was a Kagan protege. Kagan's son, Robert Kagan, um, who's my Yale college classmate, was Ed's best friend in, in, in college. Um, and Robert Kagan is also um, writes major books um, with, um, and, um, and he used to, uh, uh, I think he may have switched agents recently. But, but anyway, 
Um, so Ed Lazarus wrote a big book called um, uh, uh, Black Hills, White Justice, um, a law book, another book called Closed Chambers, another law book, and he wrote it with Glenn Hartley and Lynn Chu. So he said, check these guys out. They're my literary agents. They're Kagan's literary agents. They're Bloom's literary agents. They have your niche, serious academic book. Most of the books that they publish are actually by conservatives, um, in fact. Um, Richard Epstein, uh, David Brooks. Um, but they published a great law book by uh, an eminent law professor, former dean of the, um, uh, of the University of Chicago, Jeff Stone, uh, one of the, the, uh, the editors in charge of the, universe, uh, the, uh, the University of Chicago's Supreme Court Review Project. He wrote a spectacular book about um, the first uh, about free speech in uh, uh, under assault in war times, especially called Perilous Times. Really big, long, epic book, um, serious academically, huge commercial success. I said. I want to write a book like that. I want to write a book kind of like, like Jeff Stone, like Don Kagan, like um, uh, Harold Bloom. Ah, what's the common denominator? They were all agented by writers represented, so I approached them. Um, and Eddie La- Lazarus vouched for me and said, this guy is serious. And the, so they, they read the, I don't know if they read all of my Bill of Rights creation reconstruction book, but they probably read, you know, the, um, um, uh, you know, some reviews um, which it, it got good. That book got good. New York Times and Washington Post um, reviews, um, and they took me on. Uh, oh, and 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 they said, okay, what book do you want to write? And I actually had a little proposal, and they read it and they said, okay, you're going to need to redo this, but we can help you redo your book proposal. We can take you to the next level, and we're willing to take you on as a client. And that book um, was America's Constitutional Biography, and that book. Um, is kind of a series of it's it's very systematic right it takes the first you know it takes the constitution clause by clause and so it has sort of a natural organization and your earlier books you you just described how they you know synthesized or piecemeal articles that you had written um as well so um is it that law itself lends itself to this sort of structure um, in books, and I know it's a structure that you like, you know, where you can tell a story uh, in a chapter and then you move on to tell another story in the next chapter, even though they're somehow, even though they may be related. Um, or is this something that, that authors in many fields might look at, like to say, okay, you've done, you know, this work, you've thought about this problem, then you've thought about this thing, you've thought about that thing, and now you can put them together into a book and, and it has a natural structure to it. Or is this specific to law? I don't know. Well, now you've written a book of history. So here's what I I advise younger scholars. Take yourself seriously. Take your ideas seriously, but maybe start small so that you really get it right. And you really are an expert and you know what you're talking about. Don't bloviate, really drill down deep and then do it again and then do it again. And at the beginning, I didn't have any grand scheme at all. I just, um, but take yourself and your ideas seriously. And then after you've done it many times, you can look back and try to figure out what are my ideas? Are there any connections? You know, um, who am I? You, you won't see it, maybe, at least I didn't at the beginning. But if you take each project seriously and you take your ideas seriously, you figure out who you are as, you know, what your actual obsessions are, what your passions are. That's how it worked for me. So it's embarrassing to say I was such an idiot in a way 
And I, okay, Kierkegaard said, you live your life in prospect, but it makes sense only in retrospect. So yes, be retrospective, be introspective. You know, you're helping me in this podcast figure out who I am by asking me questions. Well, why did you do this? And what are you going to do next? And, and all the rest. So, so here's why I'm in it. In retrospect, of course, there should be a big book about the Constitution from start to finish. <laughs> of course. I mean, the amazing thing is I, got, I was the guy who got to write I got to write that because it hadn't been written in the previous 150 years. I'm, and and I, I didn't realize that at age 25. No one's written the big book on the Constitution. Um, this only became clear to me after 15 years of doing uh, stuff. Oh, my gosh, that's what I should. And how to organize it? Well, of course, the easiest way to do it would be to walk through the Constitution start to finish. And in retrospect, that's what the two most influential books on constitutional law in American history did basically the Federalist Papers were a series of newspaper op-eds that basically went through the Constitution in textual order. When you kind of, if you step back and, and look at the project, that, that's how they basically did it. Um, it shows the stories, three volume commentaries on the Constitution actually worked through the Constitution in textual order. So that's the natural way of doing it. Um, it won't, it won't look idiosyncratic. Um, there, there hasn't been such a thing since really since Joseph's story, 1833, just before the Civil War and its amendments, before women's suffrage, before the 1960s amendments. My God, it, in retrospect, why did it take me so long to realize that would be the epic thing, you know, because I didn't. I, I, the unit of contribution of law professors basically was the article and I was going to do one good article and then another good article and another good article. And yes, if I do, so I wrote an article on the bill of rights and then I realized I had to write an article on the 14th amendment bill of rights is 1991. I start teaching in 85. Um, bill of rights article is published in 91. I wrote it in 90. And I said, this is actually a pretty good article, a pretty big panoramic, maybe my best yet took my Bill of Rights stuff, which I began in 91, 92, reworked it, and it didn't begin its life as a book, but reworked in all sorts of ways, and it was published September either 3rd, 4th, or 5th, 1998. Why do I remember the date? It's your birthday. Hugely important that this book came must come out before my 40th birthday, okay? Because if I'm 40 years old and haven't really published a really great book, like I'm a total failure. You know, I might not be if I were a pod on cue, but if I'm at Yale University um, and and people are um, coming to the school expecting the best of the best of the best students and alums are giving a lot of money, expecting their 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 dollars to go to some. I, I need to be right the most ambitious books, you know, that are being written out there. And and the unit of contribution has to be, you know, not an article, but a book. So. I tell, um, I don't know if it's true for all fields. I tell, um, I don't know if it's unique to um, constitutional law, but I tell young scholars, start by drilling down and, and doing articles and do a bunch of them, do different kinds of things. You don't have to have a big idea yet. Uh, you, you may not understand what your passions and themes are. After you've done a bunch of, of, of really good work, Look back and see if there are any themes or connections, and um, is there a book there? Could you actually um, build uh, something more systematic? But in retrospect, look, it's obvious how the, my, America's Constitution biography should be written and organized because I'm trying to be in the same tradition. I didn't realize this even when I wrote it. It's only now that I see it. Kierkegaard, it makes sense only in retrospect. I was trying to write something on the same level. I know this is embarrassing to even say it out loud, but I was on the same level as the Federalist Papers, 
and uh, stories three volume commentaries on the Constitution, which are you know the the, the epic achievements um, of um, 1800s um, and um, uh, 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 1700s and the 1800s. So so now we've kind of in in the uh, Amar chronology we've we've gotten to uh, America's constitutional biography and we see how that book generated and this goes back to um, the book cycle that we discussed and that we start with the author. So the way that the author's oeuvre starts to come together for him or her is really quite fascinating. And now you've brought in uh, literary agents and how one chooses a literary literary agent and how that's a reflection uh, of yourself as you get to know yourself. Um, and so now we're sort of poised uh, to talk about your next major work um, and how that came about. And I think we'll take... Um, uh, a view from various angles of that book as well um, to explore not just literary agents and pre-publication reviews, but many other aspects uh, of publishing a book, of writing a book, uh, because I think it's really very interesting to use sort of your case studies to illuminate that. And we'll see how the words that made us also is a logical uh, outcome uh, of your career to, to this point. And I think that can be very interesting um, for Many members in our audience, I think everybody wants to write a book or at least imagines themselves writing a book at some point. And uh, so yeah, I, 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 I think you've got a book in you and we haven't told the audience what it is, but you and I have talked about it a lot and I'm really looking forward to, to seeing it. Yeah, we haven't talked, for example, about the book prospectus, the book auction, you know, getting the publisher first to bite on the book and then selling it through and, and all the rest. So lots to talk about in the next episode. But but um, with me. Speaking of, 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 of books, there's, we have this other uh, 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 thing that we're going to uh, do next week, you and I. Yes, because we're going to speak to Gordon Wood, his new book, Power and Liberty, Constitutionalism in the American Revolution. Um, and I invite our, our audience to, you can buy the book and read it in advance of that. It's available now. It's not that long. But if, you're not, if you don't have time to do that, just think about the title, Power and Liberty. Seems to me that that ties into many of the themes that we, that we've discussed in terms of how to look at the Constitution. Um, and 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 he's got a good story that he told us offline about that title, which emerged in interaction with his book publishers um, and the relationship of titles to subtitles and all the rest. And and his mentor um, Bernard Balin actually has a a section um, of his epic book, Ideological Origins of the American Revolution, which was the book that I got assigned first day of Yale College, actually called Power and Liberty, interestingly enough. So um, uh, lots to talk about with Gordon Wood. Right. So very, I think I think this is, you know, might sound a little dry at first. Are we going to talk about books? And you just wrote a book, so it might sound a little self-serving, but actually... It is, th- it is a little self-serving, well, more yeah, than but, a little. But, uh, but I think it using it as... Uh, you know, you're really getting the inside look um, at how these things come about, all the different parts of the ecosystem with somebody in you, Akil, who really has thought about these things in great detail. I mean, we can tell the story about the uh, about the font size and the paper and the uh, and the orientation of the words on the spine of the book. I mean, there's a lot of minutia that actually. Um, are quite interesting. So a lot of interesting stuff ahead for our audience and we'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.